Hey everybody, Sam Mallinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I am grateful for you listening to the 53rd episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. 53, uh, give or take, is the stolen base pace for Whit Merrifield. He leads the league with eight and has been caught just once. I know we talk a lot about the Royals with this sort of, you know, amoeba bullpen, right? With six guys who have six, who have saves already. Um, and I'd bet at least two more joining them at some point. But um, anyway, it's interesting to me as well that the Royals have nine guys with stolen bases already. Um, they're being judicious too. You know, they got 22 steals and have been caught just five times. I mean, this is one of those sort of like subtle places where the Royals need to be making up ground and they are. So Anyway, the show goal, as always, is to be worth your time. This week, we're going to do that. Questions that hit on everything from Patrick Mahomes draft day, pitchers cheating, uh, me getting smoke screened by Brett Veach, you know, and and recommendations for the Kansas City beer scene. The bonus segment is all about the Chiefs with Veach talking uh, late last night about the first round of the draft and, and how things look for the Chiefs going into their two picks in the second round today um, and, and their four other picks the rest of this weekend. The lead here, uh, one more time, is about the first place Kansas City Royals. And you know what? As always, I'm going to reserve the right to change my mind like on an absolute whim. But I'm, I'm thinking the Royals will lead the show for as long as they're in first place. Anybody be against this? Who knows? We'll see. But OK, the star is running a special promotion for the sports pass right now. Dollar a month for three months for all of our sports coverage, including more original Chiefs and Royals content than you can find anywhere else. You can find that on our website. Just reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I will send you the link. Speaking of that, I appreciate each and every one of you who has listened and offered great feedback and especially written in asking for the subscription link. Uh, seems like there's a few of you every week, and I appreciate you very, very, very much. So uh, your support means everything to me and more importantly, the people I work with. So thank you. Okay, this probably doesn't surprise you, but I could do the entire second segment, the, the, the segment with the questions. I could do that entire thing with basically nothing but versions of Aaron's question here. Hey, Sam. This is Aaron calling from New York, Brooklyn specifically, originally from Kansas City, but uh, you know, I've been out here for about 15 years, and I've even had pizza with Rustin, uh, so yeah. Anyway, my question is about the Royals, and my question is, at what point do you think, I don't know, at what point do we take this team seriously as a contender either for the central or for the wild card? Is it May? Is it June? Is it now? All right. Thanks. So instead of just doing versions of this question, you know, in that second section, let's just bang it out here. Tomorrow is May 1st. I know these things are completely arbitrary. And, and I know Dayton Moore is among the baseball people who like to have 40 games uh, before they start to make judgments. But, you know, for whatever reason, like when April turns to May, um, I don't think it's time for like grand declarations. Right. But I, I do think it's the time that you can start to say, you know, 25 games or so, like, that's not nothing. You know what I mean? So if, if you're into this sort of thing, you, you see that the Royals projected win totals and, and more importantly, their playoff chances uh, from all those you know various algorithms, they're, they're starting to look real. You know, I mean, they're up 15, 20, 25 percent 
or so on, on some of these 538 fan graphs, uh, some of the some of the models like that. So look, I, this probably isn't the answer you're looking for, but um, I, I do think with you know 135, 140 games left in a season, I mean that's just so much time that I don't think you can say like anyone is demanding to be taken seriously as a contender quite yet. And that, that goes for the Royals, the Dodgers, you know, anybody. Because if you do that, if you're saying like this team is a serious contender, like you're basically just writing your confirmation bias. You know what I mean? Like you're you're just confirming what everybody thought before the season. So look, for me, um, I, I think the first real step is in a month, six weeks, two two months, uh, you know, when teams start to decide for themselves who's a contender or not, you know, um, that's when the trade deadline, you know, will, will be here. And, you know, you'll have a better idea about who might be in this thing for the long haul. And, and just as importantly, like what everybody, what everybody needs, you know. So, look, this is just a hypothetical, um, you know, so don't hold me to this. But like just for argument's sake, um, you know, let's say that come mid-July or so, the Royals are, you know, firmly in the playoff picture, you know, but let's just say that there's signs that the bullpen is starting to tire, right? Um, and, and then Jorge Soler's oblique goes out, right? Again, just hypothetical. What's going to be interesting in that situation is what do the Royals do, right? Do, do they sit tight? Um, do they try to, you know, float a prospect for a power hitter, you know, taking on salary? Um, do they get, you know, in, into the bidding for a reliever? You know, that's when we'll start to know a lot more, not just about what each team needs uh, and which teams might be real. But, you know, the stuff that would be the most telling is what the team themselves think. Um, you can learn a lot that way. I'm telling you, you <laughs> we don't need to speculate. You know what I mean? The, the teams will give us the answers to the test sort of. So, um, you know, look, I, I want to make one more point like um, and this is related. But, you know, I, I think sometimes fans and media like people like us, right, like people like you and me, we try to ask and answer the wrong questions because, you know, it is not about deciding right now, you know, whether experts and projection systems and everything else got it wrong with the Royals, you know, and it's not about like declaring victory for Dayton's offseason or, you know, John Sherman's ownership or, or anything like that. Um, you know, the stuff that matters is what happens next, right? Like what will the Royals do over these last 139 games for them? Because this is a really strange thing, you guys. They, they are seven games over 500 with a run differential of just plus six, <laughs> that didn't happen often, you know, like just to compare, like entering Thursday's games, the Red Sox were in first place in the AL East, um, seven games over 500 with a run differential of 22. Um, the White Sox are in second place in the AL Center. The, their run differential is plus 18. And look, I, I'm not trying to give a math lesson here. I'd probably fail it anyway. But and I hope you guys know, like I'm not so wrapped up you know, in sort of what we come to shorthand as metrics that I think this is a fluke or that, you know, the 15 wins don't count because they don't have enough blowouts. But what I'm telling you is that baseball history tells us that the Royals are almost certainly not going to make the playoffs with a record that's more games over 500 than their run differential, right? Like that's just very unlikely. And you can break that down, right? Like they're not going to have an 857 win percentage in one run games, you know what I mean? Like they're not going to have a 667 win percentage in games where they scored either two or three runs. Do you think about that? They're six and three when they score either two or three runs. The rest of baseball wins about 30% of those games scoring two or three runs. So look, what I'm saying here is, you know, the Royals are going to have to play better than they've played so far to retain the record, you know, in the place in the standings that they have right now. Does that make sense? Like they're, if they're going to be in the playoffs, they need to play better in the last five months than they did in April. And that's not hate. 
That's not doubt. That's not even controversial, right? Like that's just common sense. Now, if you're a Royals fan, the the encouraging part is that they can play better than they've played so far, you know? And and in some ways that's a kind of a wild thing, right? Like if you just think about it on the surface, because here we a team most people expected to finish fourth and they're now in first place, best record in the league. And I'm telling you that they can be even better. Um, that's weird, right? But that's exactly what I'm telling you. And, and I'm telling you that because here we sit, like Royals in first place. And, you know, um, <laughs> to quote the great Jim Mora, they have gotten diddly poo from Mondesi, from Dozier, and from Brad Keller. And those are three really important guys for this team. Whit Merrifield really hasn't hit the ball hard for, for a week. Um, you know, Sal Perez was Roy Hobbs for a week, but overall, his if you look at his batting average, on base, and slugging percentage, it's like basically identical to what he's done the last three seasons. Um, you know, Jorge Soler, he had three hits last night, um, on Wednesday night, I should say, um, and, and including one to the opposite field on a boss 11 pitch at bat. That thing was that was just a great moment for him, but he's also got two home runs and in a 387 slugging percentage. He hasn't really gotten hot, you know? And so, look, on, on the other side, like, who's overperforming, right? Like, Danny Duffy and an 039 ERA, um, sure. But who else, you know? And, and there's small things, too. Um, I think the Royals are better defensively than they've shown so far. Um, they will instantly be faster and more athletic when Mondesi plays. Bobby Witt Jr. is going to be in Kansas City at some point. You know, they've got a ton of pitching. Um, you know their number four starter in Omaha, might be Chris Bubich. Isn't that crazy? That's a real thing. Their number four starter in AAA might be Chris Bubich, a guy that showed a lot of flashes in the big leagues last year. So look, it could all fall apart. Um, we all understand that. But you know, there are some real reasons here to believe. Because like on the surface, if you don't watch the games and all you see is the record, you know, it's like Royals in first place. That's weird. Must be lucky. But I think if you watch the games, I think what you see is a team that's like winning the moments. You know what I mean? And, and a team with some underperforming players who you would expect to pick it up. And, and this is where that run differential comes in. It's not a slam on the Royals. The, when you look at that run differential and you watch the games... You know, they look, they've had to win the moment so far because they're not scoring enough. So when, you know, Whit Merrifield doesn't get a guy in from third with, uh, you know, with one out, they need Carlos Santana to hit the two run homer behind him. But I think what you're seeing when you look at that run differential, the record and how they're playing, I think what you're seeing is a team that's generally outperformed that run differential, but also has a real chance to play a lot better. Okay. And, and, and if that happens, you know, unless you believe that for some reason they're going to start losing all their one run games or whatever, I think we might be seeing a team that won games when it wasn't playing all that well and then started to play better, right? Like they're in first place and they really haven't played all that well. That's kind of the crazy thing to me. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if that's how it's going to look in July. You know, maybe we'll look back on on, on April as a mirage. But um, I think there's a really good chance that we might see that, God, the Royals were in first place without even playing all that well. And then they started hitting. And then they started pitching. And then they brought up some guys. And the defense cleaned up. All those things. Be a hell of a summer, wouldn't it? 
Okay, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, uh, this podcast is free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you one more time to join us behind the paywall. Uh, we work hard to bring you information and perspectives you can't get in other places. We have the most journalists working the Chiefs and Royals, the most combined experience around the teams you follow, the most perspectives. Uh, please help support us by giving the Sports Pass a try. Again, dollar a month for three months or $30 for a year. You can find those links online or reach out to me, Facebook, Twitter, email, whatever, and I'll send them along. Uh, if you want to participate in next week's show, um, and I hope you do, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Uh, put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365, or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDLE. Uh, okay, quick break, and then we are back with those questions. Hi, Sam. This is Matthew calling from Pontiac, Illinois. First, I want to wish you a happy Patrick Mahomes Day, April 27th, the day that Patrick Mahomes walked into our lives and changed everything. But that's not the main reason I'm calling. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten a few messages about Richard Rodriguez, the pitcher for the Pirates, having a tar-like substance on his glove and how this might have impacted his ability to close out the game against the Royals. I mean, uh, no excuses. You still have to hit the guy, especially because uh, if you zoom out a little bit, this seems to be happening all over the league. Um, there were so Im- some images of the Orioles pitcher, John Means, going around the other day, and, of course, some reporting about baseballs at Bauer through um, being taken aside for inspection. It seems like these sticky substances um, help increase spin rate, I guess, um, and make breaking balls even harder to hit. So my question is, how prevalent is this? Does it matter? And if Major League Baseball is interested in more balls in play and fewer strikeouts, it seems like monitoring this sort of thing would be a more direct route than, say, moving the mound back or something else, something like that. All right, thanks. I'll hang up and listen in a few days. Bye. And a happy Mahomes Day to you, too. I remember that night well, you know, uh, including the, the momentary smoke screen that John Dorsey put out just to have a laugh about, you know, them taking Reuben Foster with the pick. And And by the way, I believe the Chiefs were very much interested in Reuben Foster in that draft, um, but they're not going to trade up from 27 to 10 for a middle linebacker. But, you know, I remember the reporter next to me in that press conference after they made the pick just distraught that his team just traded all the way up for a quarterback they didn't want to play as a rookie. I remember John Dorsey, you know, dropping the the Brett Favre comp and, you know, referencing this absolutely absurd throw that Mahomes made against Louisiana Tech. Like he was scrambling to his left and then just against his body chucks it something like 55, 60 yards downfield on a dime. I mean, if you think about like what the Chiefs quarterback history had been at that point, it, it was just might as well have been an alien, um, you know, that they drafted. Um, I remember being really happy that night too. You know, you guys have heard me talk before about how the like this weird job I have, it just changes the way that you watch sports. You know, it doesn't change it for the better, doesn't change it for the worse. It's just it's just different. And in that moment, I remember just two simultaneous points of excitement. Like first I was just excited for you guys, for Chiefs fans, because like finally, right? Like, you know, 1983 and and all these things, your team finally made the big boy move to go get a quarterback. And, you know, second, like I was, (laughs) I was excited for me too. (laughs) 
you know, I'm not gonna lie. Like you may or may not remember this, but we did a ton of work before that draft around the quarterbacks. You know, podcasts, videos, columns, takeouts, everything. There was just a lot of signs pointing that way that the that the Chiefs were going to do this. And you know, we all went fairly deep into the quarterbacks, and you know, Trubisky, Watson, Mahomes, and it was just plainly obvious that you know Mahomes had this almost like superhuman talent, but you know, also some real flaws and risk that would come with the pick and you know i gotta tell you like selfishly <laughs> boomer bust i'm just gonna tell you boomer bust is pretty good for the you know pretty good content for the local sports columnist i'm gonna tell you that so um anyway sorry uh we're two minutes in and you just but you got me distracted with the m word i'll answer your question about the pitchers cheating um look my view maybe i'm cynical but i think this stuff is used a lot a lot i'm not saying everybody i'm not even saying most um, but I think this is a really competitive sport with a lot of money and fame and pride on the line and the entirety of human history. And, and it should be noted that includes baseball history and other sports, too. But, the, you know, all of our history says that humans will bend the rules in those situations. And baseball is particularly right for this stuff, too, because, you know, the rules are often kind of vague and oversight is just kind of tough. And, you know, you, you mentioned Trevor Bauer in, in your question. I know there were a lot of people around baseball uh, who got a big kick out of him getting looked at, you know, uh, but he is a great guy to talk about here because he's been outspoken about this stuff. You know, he, he called out the Astros uh, a few years back for using pine tar in order to, or at least he alleged that they were using pine tar in order to, you know, increase spin rates. And, you know, there's basically what amounts to an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence that Trevor Bauer used pine tar for an inning of a start in April 2018 to basically just prove a point about this stuff. Um, that, that it does, it kicks up your RPMs about 300, uh, which, which can be significant. You know, baseball is taking steps and, and, you know, <laughs> I look, I promise no pun intended here, but baseball is taking steps to like clean this stuff up. You know, the, the motives of leagues and situations like this are never about purity, right? Like they're not doing it cause it's the right thing to do or the rules or whatever, you know, cause it, it's a good point you bring up. Cause I find it really hard to believe that it's just a coincidence that major league baseball is starting to care about this after all these years. Now is the point where they're starting to care about this at the same moment in history that they're taking tangible steps to get more balls in play and more action to create a more attractive product, right? Like that is just, nobody believes that that's just a coincidence. So, um, anyway, yeah, Matthew, um, Basically, I guess what I'm telling you is that I agree with everything that you said. Hopefully that can still be good content, right? Maybe. Anyway, okay. Uh, here's a Chiefs question. And um, you guys have probably noticed by now that I'm a bit of a sucker for inside journalism stuff. All right. Here's Rob. Sam, hi. This is Rob from Hendersonville, Tennessee. I was wanting to ask you about, as a newspaper man, how, uh, I guess, upsetting or conflicted are you when you hear uh, Brett Be- Veach in his last few actually last two inter- uh, conferences news conferences talk about the uh, offensive line and specifically not even specific but general alleys about keeping Eric Fisher and Swartz before that and then obviously cutting them within days and then in this last press conference within hours signing uh Orlando Brown. It's interesting, obviously, uh, the timing of both those announcements and his press conferences. I assume it's on purpose, but maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to hear your insight and hear how frustrated 
uh, Sam McDowell and some of your other colleagues might be, um, spending time and effort and energy asking questions. I know it's in his best interest, it's in the chief's best interest to have him work the way he does. But I'm sure it's uh, probably the side of the uh, coin that you probably are not uh, all that uh, thrilled with. I can't imagine I would be. Anyway, thank you for what you do and look forward to hearing your, uh, your response. Look, man, I, this stuff might have ticked me off at a different time in my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just being honest with you, but uh, I'm past that. You know, uh, the way I look at it, you know, the teams can't tell me what to write and I can't tell them what to say. You know what I mean? Like, that's the deal. And but let's go through this because it's kind of interesting. The, the stuff with Schwartz was not that much of a surprise. You know, a back injury can be debilitating for anybody, um, you know, especially a, a huge man whose job it is to push around other huge men. You know, uh, the Fisher thing was surprising only because of what you're referencing here. You know, that, that Veach had said the medical staff had him down as an August return. And I, I, I can't remember specifically how much we talked about this or if anybody mentioned this at the time, but that in, the, in that conference call when, when Veach said that, it was a shocking thing to say. Enough that I pushed back a question that I was going to ask just to get clarification on, on, on what Veach meant by that with Fisher. And, you know, even then, after Veach's answer to my follow-up, which is basically just to reference what Rick Burkholder had told him, you know, even after all that, I think it was Vahe who asked Chiefs PR to clarify one more time. And, you know, looking back, I think what got lost in the messaging is that Rick and 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 his staff, they had Fisher down to basically uh, put on cleats and a helmet sometime in August. And, and Veach said August return, right? But I think what Rick had down for August, you know, that did not mean that he would be ready to play in a regular season game by week one. I think like football-related activities, right? Like cleats, helmet, very light kind of stuff. Not, you know, blocking a BOSA on the edge, right? Uh, you know, throwing the importance of that position and the sort of isolation of that position at left tackle. And, and, and what I mean by that is if he's a receiver or a running back or a middle linebacker or something, like maybe you take your time on the rehab and, and you stick with the guy, you know, because maybe he starts slow or maybe he doesn't play until October, November, whatever, but you can sort of absorb that at different positions. Um, but you cannot go into a season without a real left tackle protecting your quarterback. You know, like you just can't. So, um, look, I mean, no, like I'm, I'm big on personal accountability. Um, right. And, and I should have had my senses up a bit more on the Fisher thing. Um, you know, the, the frustration with the timing, uh, on the Brown trade, like I've got some frustration on that one, but it's not with Veach. Like he doesn't schedule these things. So, you know, at some point I just wish they would have canceled the call on Friday, knowing that, you know, 90% of it would be just a waste for everybody within an hour or two. Um, you know, just do it on Monday, you know, either before or after Brown talks. But, you know, again, I'm not here to tell them when to talk or whatever, and they're not there to tell me what to write or say. So, uh, like the, the, the frustration that that I would have, the stuff that would get under my skin, you know, would be just like a direct lie, you know, and I'm not talking about anything said in a press conference either, but a direct lie to me, you know, kind of privately, like over the phone or text or whatever. Um, the other thing is just like if somebody's just being demeaning or whatever to me or, you know, probably more importantly to somebody else, um, you know, that's the stuff that's going to get to me. And, you know, whatever it's worth, I don't get any of that from this group. So, you know, it's all good, you know, smoke screen away and, and I will take the challenge of getting to the truth. So, OK, let's change topics a bit here. Hey, Sam, uh, this is John from uh, Seattle. 
Um, been out in the Northwest here for about a year now, and uh, obviously the beer scene out here is fantastic. Um, anyway, I'm going to be coming home uh, to visit some family here in a couple weeks and have a beer question for you. Uh, just want to know if you had any new uh, breweries or beers that you've been drinking in Kansas City that you uh, might suggest, you know, something that's exciting, new, or maybe just an old KC classic that's going to say, uh, hey, John, welcome home. Um, anyway, a big fan of the podcast. I always enjoy reading your stuff, and I uh, can't wait to come back to Kansas City and uh, enjoy a pint. Thanks. Yeah, so um, it's good timing that you're asking this because I haven't been there yet. I think it's only been open a week or two, but um, Torn Label just opened a restaurant at their brewery. And uh, the the chef comes over from Corvino, so I'm sure it's good stuff. And they make a lot of good beer there too. You know, the Monk and Honey is great. The Alpha Pale Ale, they they just they do some great stuff over there. Brewery Imperial is one of my favorite places in the city. They got an awesome outdoor space. You know, if you're here when the weather's good, uh, the burger is one of the best in town. The smoked half chicken is nails. Uh, the biscuit is one of the best beers anyone does here too. Uh, but there's a lot of options, you know, um, you know, double shifts, tessellation is great. City Barrels beers, they tend to be like a little more like toward the sours than I like, but that's just a personal taste thing. And their food is really good and you can find a beer for anyone there. Um, Alma Mater uh, might make the most consistently interesting and best beers in the city. Casual Animal, they, they do some really good stuff. They've got a lager right now that's great. Casey Beer Company's got some bangers there. Their Pilsner is, is maybe my favorite um, that I've had uh, and some others. And I like all, all these places are sort of in or close to downtown, which um, I'm guessing is where you'll want to be if you're coming in from out of town. But there's good spots all over the city. Crane uh, is in Raytown. Their farmhouse IPA is one of my favorites that anybody does in Kansas City. Um, you can find some good stuff, man. So look, I, I don't know that it matches up with Seattle's beer scene. You know, actually, I'm fairly certain it probably doesn't. But uh, I think you'll find that there's enough here to to give you a good day or three uh, of enjoying your city. I hope you like it. Okay, that's it. We'll uh, take a quick break and then we'll come back with the, uh, the the bonus section, as I like to call it, which is basically Brett Veach talking late last night, setting up the rest of the weekend in the NFL draft and what the Chiefs are looking for. Okay. Okay, so the first round of the NFL draft happened last night. And before we do anything else, I need to say right here and right now that unless the Broncos trade for Aaron Rodgers, I will never understand them not taking Justin Fields nine overall. Um, Or if they don't like Fields, trade back with someone who does. It just makes no sense to me. And and I want to be clear, like I will feel this way no matter how good Patrick Sertan the second is. Um, I, I know Mark Schlereth uh, reported the Broncos are close to trading for Rodgers and, and good on them if that happens. But it was reported a few different places that the 49ers offered the number three pick, Jimmy Garoppolo, plus other players and other picks for Rodgers. And the Packers said no. So, like, uh, how exactly are the Broncos going to beat that offer? You know what I mean? And and what is it that the Broncos could offer 
that would make it worth the effort for the Packers. Like three first round picks, like a first and Jerry Judy and Justin Simmons. And, you know, like at what point does the value of someone like Fields at a basement price exceed Rodgers at 35 million or whatever, plus everything else you have to give up? And look, I, I know the obvious comeback here is the Peyton Manning template, right? That, that, you know, they spent big to bring in a veteran, you know, another inner circle Hall of Famer, and they won a Super Bowl. And that's all true. Uh, but I point out that the Broncos won that Super Bowl with defense, you know, that Manning and, and he had some big years early in his time at Denver. But by the end, when they beat the Panthers in that Super Bowl, they did it with defense. So anyway, really like that was the story of the first round for me. And uh, I'm not just, I'm just not going to stop thinking about this. I, I can't believe that the Broncos did this. Um, OK, I had to get that off my chest. We're going to play you two Brett Veach clips here, um, and I'm saving the most interesting for last because there's a lot to break down in what he said, and we're actually going to break it down in real time there. But, you know, here's his general reaction to the first round, including whether he was tempted to trade back into it. No, I mean, like I said, I think the value of this draft is really that uh, first part of two into the early mid stage of three. So, um, I mean, there was there wasn't a time where there was any temptation um, when we made that move for Orlando. That was the guy we wanted and we were happy and content to, to work with these two twos tomorrow. Whatever it's worth, you know, if the Chiefs Chiefs kept that 31st overall pick, um, they could have had their choice of addressing a few and. I'm not going to call the anything with the Chiefs a need, right? So let's go with desires, okay? Uh, they could have addressed desires at uh, tackle with Tevin Jenkins from Oklahoma State, um, edge rusher with Aziz Ojolari from Georgia, and wide receiver with Elijah Moore from Ole Miss. Um, you know, Jenkins is really interesting because he fits the mold, and, and I don't think the Chiefs felt like they could count on him being there at 31. Um, Ojolari might be a bit of a development guy, but he's really quick on the edge and that could have been a good deal to get in the program you know for a year and then give him a bigger role in 2022 if you want to walk away from frank clark for the cap space um and then elijah moore just seems like a chief's kind of receiver really fast um explosive after the catch you know though he's mostly a slot guy um i don't know if that was a red flag to them you know to andy reed really likes versatility from his receivers but um, anyway, I, I said this last night on Twitter, but I do think the Chiefs still make the Orlando Brown trade, uh, even if they could have been certain those guys, each one of those guys would be available at 31. Because, you know, you, you can kind of afford a sort of redshirt year with a lot of draft picks, you know, and, and the Chiefs often have to because they're, they're drafting late in rounds and they, you know, generally have good players already. But you absolutely don't want a guy you're not sure of protecting Mahomes' backside. You know, we'll, we'll get to more with Brown here in a minute, um, including what I thought was a really interesting minute or so uh, from Brett Veach about that trade. But first, um, let's just look around the division and around the rest of the AFC. Like the, the Chargers, I thought, did really well drafting Northwestern left tackle Rashawn Slater to play left the play that position, left tackle, um, in front of Justin Herbert. The Raiders were basically mocked by everybody for taking Alabama lineman Alex Leatherwood uh, 17th overall um, with some general generally better rated linemen still on the board. The Ravens used that 31st pick that they got from the Chiefs uh, on Jason Away, kind of a big swing edge rusher from uh, from Penn State. And they do that four picks after taking Rashad Bateman, a really talented and versatile receiver from Minnesota. That guy, he, he might be a player. The, the Ravens still have work to do, but, you know, giving Lamar Jackson another weapon, you know, and, and getting that defense a little closer to where it needs after, uh, needs to be after losing a couple guys. Like, these are, these are good things for the Ravens. That, that is a good organization. I thought the Browns got better 
you know, and, and importantly here, like a little bit better against the Chiefs, you know, Greg Newsom, the quarterback, uh, corner back from, from Northwestern. Um, I get that they're the Browns and we all have our jokes, right? But that's a team that's getting better with a lot of young talent. Um, I mean, that, that group is really worth watching. Uh, the Bills, the Bills took a big swing at Greg Rousseau, uh, pass rusher from Miami who might have, you know, some, some boomer bust in him. I liked what the Colts did, you know, adding pass rush. Um, I thought Jacksonville made a really bad pick with Travis Etienne, 25th overall. And and not because Etienne isn't a great prospect um, or, or won't be a great player, because I assume he will be. But, you know, they just had James Robinson show that he could be the guy last year as a rookie. And, you know, you're telling me like a first round, like snap share running back is the best way for the Jaguars to get better. Um, that doesn't make as much sense to me. But anyway, that's my initial reaction. Take it for what it's worth. But now I want to get to the most important and telling thing that, that Brett Beach said last night. This is the answer to a question from Adam Teicher that was sort of general just about, you know, kind of what they like about Orlando Brown and why they wanted to do that deal. So this clip in its entirety is a little over a minute long. And uh, we're going to play the whole thing, but I'm going to interrupt Beach a few times along the way because I think there's a lot of great stuff in here and I want to make sure that, that we don't miss it. So, okay, Savannah, uh, hit it. We looked at the the draft and, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Adam, just uh, picking 31 and, and, and wanting to have a, a plug and play guy um, and not just a, a tackle, uh, a real tackle, a, a Pro Bowl caliber tackle. Okay, stop. So uh, th- that's the whole deal here, you guys. Like that explains why the Chiefs weren't into Russell Okun or Alejandro Villanueva in free agency and, and why they weren't pumped about the tackle options that would be there at 31. Um, you know, they've been used to relying on two Pro Bowl caliber tackles for years now. And especially with some uncertainty at right tackle because, yeah, I mean, they're excited about Lucas Niang, um, but he also hasn't played football in a year. And, and he'll be trying a new position. So with everything else going on, the Chiefs just really wanted a guy they could put at left tackle, trust, and forget about it. You know, like like Brett said, like not just a guy, but, you know, sort of a dude, um, you know, a guy that, that, that they know that they can rely on. And they were willing to pay the premium, you know, to get that. So, um, okay, let's go back to Veach. I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people during this process that, that work with Orlando in the past in New Orlando and um, it was very consistent with what we had on him coming out, just a high character guy, really smart, loves the process. All the things we talk about, when we talk about the check boxes for these offensive linemen, uh, durable, the guy doesn't miss any snaps, he's smart, uh, he's, he's tough, he loves the process, and, uh, that's, that's an infectious trait, and that, you know, losing some guys like Fisher and, and, and Schwartz, um, it, you know, it's one thing to replace, uh, you know, the, uh, the athlete, but also uh, the type of people these guys were and what they bring into the locker room. Okay, stop again. Th- this is huge. The-, the Chiefs obviously love the dependability and trust of Fisher and Schwartz, you know, on the edges, but they're also sort of like the bosses of that O-line room, you know, and-, and that's really important, you know, when the other spots are mostly young guys, you know, and of course when the standard is a Super Bowl. So we talked about this some at the time, um, but it's a huge reason they were attracted to Joe Tooney as well. You know, that guy is a dude, you know, as they like to say, um, does his job, also super respected, you know, great model for, you know, how to work, you know, one of those smart, generous, you know, team first sort of voices that can lift guys around them. And I don't know as much about Austin Blythe one way or the other. And, and I mean that literally, I, I just don't know. He could be great. But the Chiefs have clearly put an emphasis on what their offensive linemen are going to be like, you know, Monday through Saturday and, and not just on Sunday. And that's, you know, Orlando Brown fits that mold. So, okay, let's go back to Veach and uh, the last part of the clip right here. So, um, you, you know, you talk about Orlando and he has all those 
attributes you look for, the size, the length, uh, the mental toughness, the durability, the leadership. So uh, hard to find that. Uh, you know, the, these guys that you're looking at, I mean, a lot of these guys you like and, and they have developmental upside, but uh, I mean, we're certainly um, built to win and built to win now and, and to have a plug and play guys very hard. And um, that's why we couldn't pass up that opportunity. So there's the rest of it. It's not like the Chiefs didn't like the guys they could have taken, but it's just, and, and Veach won't say this publicly and he shouldn't, but you know, if they stood at 31, they would have felt forced to take a tackle, you know? And even with Jenkins, you're looking at guys, they probably have a second, third round grade on, um, you know, and taking them in the first because they're desperate for needs. So Orlando Brown doesn't need development. The the Ravens did that already. You know, he is a boss the minute he walks into the facility with a foxtail hanging out his pocket. You know what I mean? So it's a big of a, it's a bit of a risk, right? Because you only have 13 games of tape on him at left tackle. And, you know, what the Ravens do is so different <laughs> than what the Chiefs do. You know, what Lamar Jackson does is so much different than, than what Patrick Mahomes does. But, you know, everything's a risk, right? And if it ever makes sense to pay a little bit of a premium for certainty, like, I think this is it, you know, the left tackle protecting Mahomes. So, you know, besides they got that second round pick back in that deal. I keep thinking about that. I I might have been okay with that deal even without the second round pick. The second round pick coming back, I thought, put it over the top. So, you know, that means that they can probably still get a receiver they like, you know, a developmental edge rusher, depth of the offensive line, secondary. There, there's just a lot of different directions they can go. Um, you know, the Chiefs are in a really, really good place here, you guys. Uh, I hope you followed my advice the other day in the column, too, about enjoying this draft more than most. You know, originally I was going to, uh, you know, plan on doing some brisket and making nachos out of them just to be completely gluttonous. But um, I ended up with some ribs. They're smoking right now as we speak. I'm pumped. They should be ready before the 15th pick. So, okay, guys, uh, that's the show. I appreciate all of you for listening, and I hope we're worth your time. Thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Huge thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this together. And as always, biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life. Uh, Let's do it again next week. I assume we'll talk more about the Royals and the NFL draft and uh, probably KU's new football coach. Okay, have a great weekend, you guys. Be kind.